Welcome, listeners, to episode 33 of Snippet Sports Science Podcast, sponsored by EliteForm.com. Please visit our sponsor at EliteForm.com. We are very grateful to them for keeping the lights on here and the mics recording. Chris is with me today. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good, thanks, Jared. And yourself? Pretty well. We're looking at part two of Periodized Nutrition for Athletes, written by Asker Jukendrup. In part one, we covered training low and training high, talking about carbohydrate there. In this part, we're going to be talking about training the gut, training dehydrated, and improving adaptations with supplements. Just to overview, there are four methods for training the gut. That's training stomach comfort, which is around the volume of intake, training for gastric emptying, which will also reduce stomach discomfort, so those two go together. Third, there's training absorption through the gut, and this is primarily for increasing the ability of carbohydrate intake through the gut. And finally, there's training race nutrition, which trains all aspects of the nutrition strategy as an athlete would perform on, on a race day. In regard to training dehydrated, that's very simply training with limited or no fluid intake, as you would expect. In regards to the supplements, there are three classes of supplements for training. The first is to allow more training, the second is to increase protein synthesis, and the third is to increase mitochondrial biogenesis. Everyone's just going, get us to the supplements. We want supplements. The first point here is around training the gut. In addition to the direct effects of training high in performance, there are many other benefits through reducing gastrointestinal problems. In addition to the direct effects of training high on performance, sounds like you're talking about marijuana. <laughs> decreases nausea i've actually so in um so in high school we had i was captain of cross country and track teams and uh we did have a guy on the team who actually did smoke very uncommon for a runner uh because you need your lungs to function yeah. reasonably well and uh and he told us that because he used to go for runs when he was high sometimes and he'd say you feel like you're running very fast and you're not. <laughs> <laughs> However, back to the article. So, gastrointestinal problems are very common amongst endurance athletes, ranging from mild to severe. It's possible that some of these symptoms are caused by the fact that the intestine is not adapted to absorb nutrients well under stress. It's likely that these symptoms are at least partly related to the fact that blood flow to the intestine is reduced during intense and prolonged exercise, and dehydration seems to exacerbate this effect. It is also known that the intestinal absorption is the main barrier to delivering carbohydrate to the contracting muscle. Training the gut could potentially help with the development of gut adaptations that improve the delivery of nutrients, especially carbohydrate, and reduce the prevalence or severity of gastrointestinal symptoms during exercise. Let's just remind me a bit about uh, just relaying that to some heat literature that you often see people regard core temperature as the highest quality measure of temperature during exercise. But I've always been a bit critical of that because it's taken from the stomach and blood is withdrawn from the stomach during exercise. And so it's not an appropriate measure for core temperature during exercise because it's just not related. And just thinking a little bit more on that with heat training, if you're also in a heated environment and cold food and beverages are encouraged to improve that tolerance to the heat during heated exercise, but those cold beverages also decrease your ability to absorb nutrients. So you might have a little bit of a trade-off there between uh, having an ice slushy and being able to get your carbohydrate in. It's a good point. 
and there's a substantial body of evidence that suggests that the gastrointestinal system is highly adaptable. Gastric emptying as well as stomach comfort can be trained. Perceptions of fullness decreased and some studies have suggested nutrient-specific increases in gastric emptying. There's also evidence that diet has an impact on the capacity of the intestine to absorb nutrients. For example, a high-carbohydrate diet will increase the number of sodium glucose co-transporters in the intestine as well as the activity of the transporters, allow a greater carbohydrate absorption and oxidation during exercise. It's also likely that when such adaptations occur, the chances of developing gastrointestinal distress are reduced. To develop these effective strategies, it's important to obtain a better understanding of the exact mechanisms underlying these adaptations. It's clear that nutritional training can improve gastric emptying and absorption and likely reduce the chances and or severity of gastrointestinal problems, thereby improving endurance performance as well as ensuring a better experience for the athlete. The gut is an important organ for the endurance athletes and should be conditioned for the situation as it will be required to function in. Now we'll move on to training race nutrition. Training race nutrition refers to mimicking everything an athlete would encounter on race day. Whereas training the gut would focus on carbohydrate absorption, for example, training race nutrition also includes drinking, ingesting salt tablets, caffeine intake, and other practices that are part of an athlete's race day nutrition plan. Good little point there, Jared. And the next area is around training dehydrated, which is a concept that has been considered for some time but only recently systematically has been investigated is whether training in a hyperhydrated state can improve performance when dehydrated. Fleming and James recruited 10 recreational active individuals who performed four exercise tests in a euhydrated or hyperhydrated state. So euhydrated is a, like a normal state of body water content, whereas hyperhydrated is a process of losing body water. And then hyperhydrated would be a uh... What happens if someone consumes a lot of unsalted water and so they end up with too high of a ratio of water to salt in their body, which can also be dangerous. In this study, euhydration and hyperhydration was induced by manipulated fluid intake in 24 hours pre-exercise and during a 45-minute steady state run, followed by a 5-kilometer performance task. On average, the runners were 5.8% slower with euhydrated training, so that's where they had a normal state of body water content, and only 1.2% slower when they train in a dehydrated state. Additionally, the rating of perceived exertion was normalized after hyperhydrated training. Therefore, it appeared from the study that familiarization with hyperhydrated may have the potential to improve performance in situations where hyperhydration may occur. However, once again, these aren't elite athletes. You know, they were just recreational fit individuals so take it with a grain of salt which actually may possibly affect your salt content which may be useful in this context and on to the supplements because we all want supplements what does it say about here how can they enhance chronic adaptations jared exactly and that's the big focus that we're looking at is enhancing chronic adaptations correct because there are a lot of supplements that are it's much easier to demonstrate that something enhances acute performance because you just have to run an acute study, a very short study. And we don't necessarily know if any of those supplements that acutely increase performance, if they actually chronically improve adaptation. So that's a very big distinction to make is that we are only going to be discussing supplements that enhance chronic adaptations. Of these, we have three main categories. The first category are those that allow more training to be performed. These are caffeine, bicarbonate, 
creatine, and nitrates, such as those from beetroot. The second category are those that initiate or increase protein synthesis, and these are essential amino acids, leucine, branched-chain amino acids, and beta-hydroxy-beta-methylbutyrate, also known as HMB. And if you're familiar with any of those, those are all largely the same thing, actually just slightly different ways of applying that amino acid stimulus. The third category are supplements that increase mitochondrial biogenesis, and these include green tea extracts, epicatechins, resveratrol, quercetin, and conjugated linoleic acid, also known as CLA. Going into more depth on the supplements that increase quality of training, we know that both caffeine and sodium bicarbonate are very popular because there is a lot of evidence that these supplements can enhance performance during exercise, provided that the exercise duration and intensity are in the range that these supplements are effective. There is also evidence that nitrates can improve exercise performance in specific conditions. It must be realized that for caffeine, most studies have studied exercise lasting around one hour and for bicarbonate and nitrates, typically between 1 and 10 minutes. So you want to be taking these supplements for the appropriate duration that they have evidence for. Creatine has also been shown to increase the sprint capacity when performing repeated sprints. Such supplements could potentially improve long-term training adaptations because they will allow for a greater training load or higher quality of training. Long-term sodium bicarbonate ingestion could result in improved training adaptations. One study used long-term sodium bicarb ingestion and found that the group that consumed 400 milligrams of sodium bicarb per kilogram body mass 1.5 and 0.5 hours before interval training, so that's both half an hour and one and a half hours before the training, three times per week over eight weeks, had greater improvements in the lactate threshold and short-term endurance performance, which was tested as a time to fatigue at 100% VO2 max. Now, just important to note that 400 milligrams of bicarb is a lot. It's very difficult to consume half a gram of sodium bicarb. I think most people probably have sodium bicarb sitting in their, in their kitchen pantry. Most people sort of forget about that. It's a sports supplement, but we also use it in baking. Mm. Um, and so if you look at half a gram of that, consuming it is, can be quite a challenge. As well, these findings were not reproduced in a study in well-trained rowers. Also, as previously discussed in, in part one, carbohydrate intake can also be used to improve the total amount of work done in training. Although there's good evidence that acutely these nutritional strategies improve performance and thus could increase the quantity as well as the quality of training, there's less evidence for their chronic adaptations. That's really nice there. I don't want to be taking that much sodium bicarbonate at 105 kilos. Anyway, the next point is around supplements that increase protein synthesis. And this is another category of supplements that claims to increase protein synthesis, which would be relevant to both strength as well as endurance sports, or more specifically, myofibrillar protein, which would benefit those athletes who want to gain muscle mass and strength. It has become apparent that it is mainly the essential amino acids that drive the process of muscle protein synthesis. Perhaps the most important candidate is the key essential amino acid, leucine as it alone appears to be the metabolic trigger for most muscle protein synthesis. Leucine, branched-chain amino acids, or HMB, would all potentially work through the same mechanisms of triggering activating muscle protein synthesis, pretty much as you said earlier. 
right? It's pretty much all of those are, are the same thing as long as you're getting some sort of primary amino acid or protein dose, you're fine. The differences between them are all equivocal. As long as you have those essential amino acids in there, anything you're taking is, is appropriate. And it's probably most cost effective to just get some milk protein isolate, some, some whey or some casein and just take those or eat real food with sufficient protein in it. What would be your food of choice? I'd go for eggs there, actually. Yeah. And how do you like your eggs? Fried. Nice. And the last point around supplements with the potential to increase mitochondrial biogenesis. Do you want to talk about that one first, Jared? Thanks, Chris. This category of supplements claims to increase mitochondrial biogenesis, fat oxidation, and endurance capacity performance. It's perhaps the largest group of supplements, but is also the one with the least solid evidence. These include, but are not limited to, the catechins, epicatechin, and epigallocatechin, gallate, polyphenols such as resveratrol and quercetin, caffeine, and conjugated linoleic acid, or CLA. Although there are some promising results, especially in animal models, translation to healthy trained athletes is often problematic. For example, while green tea extracts containing the catechins have been shown to increase fat oxidation and performance in mice, in humans, these effects were not found after 7 to 28 days of green tea extract supplementation. Two recent review articles summarize the effects of these small nutritional bioactives, and so you should pull up the article that we've been reviewing and look into those for more in-depth information. And these seems to be those products where they seem to really hold on this type of evidence from animal-type studies to try and claim that it has some form of performance benefit. And they've done well in the marketing, the green teas, the beetroots, and so forth, perhaps the cherry juices, where there's some evidence behind it, but not a lot of heavy evidence. Right. Definitely not strong evidence. Definitely the weakest evidence out of any. But it's maybe also important to note that a lot of these supplements have been at least minorly observed to have beneficial effects across quite a few different things. So, I mean, green tea is a very healthy drink in general. And so, although it might not be getting direct performance benefits, probably a good thing overall to drink some green tea. Exactly right. And probably just train hard and train smart. Number one. Exactly right. And the last point was around supplements that may reduce training adaptation. A very small paragraph, but the certain supplements here was around, in particular, a high intake of antioxidants, which could actually reduce the training adaptation to exercise. Not all studies have demonstrated such effects, and differences between studies may be a function of the specific antioxidants used and the dose and the timing of intake. So, in conclusion, the most common methods for periodized nutrition are training with high carbohydrate availability, known as train high, and training with low carbohydrate availability, train low. There are many variations of these methods. In addition, because the gut is an important organ, methods to improve gut function, such as having faster absorption and reduced GI distress, have also been developed. There are also certain ingredients, such as supplements, that may increase the effects of training. All these methods can be captured on the umbrella of periodized nutrition. Nutritional training is another term that is sometimes used, and this term can be used interchangeably. Which of these methods should be used depends on the specific goals of the individual, and there are no methods that will address all needs. I think this just comes down to be aware of the different nutritional strategies that are available to you, 
and practice them and understand your body and how it responds in respect to the supplement itself or the strategy you use, but in conjunction with different training. You mentioned earlier about training low intensity versus training at higher intensities and understanding and actually logging the information so you're able to reflect on how it affected you. Yeah, yeah, good takeaway. Any other points on this paper, Jared? Well, I think just my my personal overall recommendations for people would be consume carbohydrate and protein around your training. I think that's that's overall a great idea. Train appropriate to how you're actually going to compete. So whatever you're doing in competition, you know, law of specificity, apply those strategies in your training to get the be- the best effects, as well as go ahead and give some of the supplements a try, but don't prioritize them. And if you don't have the money for it, you're not really missing out. That's right. It's really important to get the big rocks right first. And this stuff here is a small 1%. If you aren't getting the big things right first, this is going to make a small amount of difference, but probably not a lot. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Thank you, Jared. Really enjoyed that. Me too. Uh, Good article. uh, I really enjoy the dietary ones. I feel like we get to learn a bit more out of those. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. Thank you, listeners. Hope you learned something as well. Tune in next week. And big thank you to our sponsor, EliteForm.com.